This is Tush. And I welcome you to Tushalicious Talk, an Oklahoma City podcast for titillating women, tantalizing conversation. And I thank you in advance for allowing me to be your one-stop shop advocacy connection. Hello, hello, hello again. Welcome back to another episode of Tushalicious Talk. My name is Jackie. Nickname is Tush. And today I have Colleen McCarty, who is from Oklahoma Appleseed Center for Law and Justice. And then my reoccurring just guest, Stephanie Henson from the League of Women Voters of Oklahoma State. And um, Colleen, what is your position at Oklahoma Appleseed? So I'm the executive director, uh, which means, unfortunately, I have to be the boss, but also it's cool because I get to be the boss. <laughs> Sounds like a good deal. <laughs> so I went on the website in preparing for uh, this episode, and um, the two things that I want to talk about today are you have a program called the uh, Oklahoma Criminalized Survivor Justice Project. And then later on, I want to get into the Ten Commandments of Representing People with Mental Illness. So um, for the Criminalized Survivor Justice Project, I read, and there's a whole paragraph, um, if anyone does want to go, it's at appleseed.org. Okay, appleseed.org. Thank you. So what I read, it says self-defense law is largely driven by case law dating back to the 17th century when men would gun each other down in duels and people would routinely die in bar fights that went too far. Uh, In order to prevail on a self-defense claim, you have to be in imminent danger and reasonably fear for your life. So I have lots of questions about that because I thought the self-defense law had a different meaning to it. So if you'll touch on that paragraph and tell us exactly what Appleseed is and why it was founded. Sure. So self-defense is obviously something that goes all the way back to caveman times. And it is one of the ways that You can defend yourself if you're accused of hurting someone or killing someone if you can show that you were in justifiable fear of your life and the harm that you used against them was proportional. Um, Of course, knowing that back then um, women were property and children were property, there was not a lot of consideration for women who were defending themselves or children who were defending themselves that really all the case law is built around interpreting male-on-male fighting. And we even see that today, um, 50% of the women who raise self-defense claims are unsuccessful compared to men who raise self-defense claims. So essentially, we don't really believe women when they say they're defending themselves, and we don't really um, believe that they're in, that they believed they were in imminent harm for some reason, even though when a man says it, we do believe it. Mm. Okay. But uh, as far as what Appleseed is, so we're a public interest law center and a 501c3, which means we're a nonprofit. And we work in three areas of policy. Criminal and juvenile justice is one. And then election justice is the other one. And then the third one is education justice. So we're working on um, fair and equitable equitable funding for public schools and things like that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So 
I thought that Appleseed was like a domestic violence advocacy organization. So obviously I'm wrong about that. Um, it is one of the projects we do in the criminal justice area mm-hmm. uh, is we work on behalf of women who are victims of domestic violence, but then go on to end up in prison, which is what it means to be a criminalized survivor. So ultimately their abuse um, fueled their criminalization and then they go on to get prosecuted for a crime stemming from being a victim. Okay. <laughs> That's a lot. Um, so when someone is a survivor and they are in their heads, it's self-defense. As far as the law is concerned, it's not always self-defense. Correct. So they would have to mount a defense in court to prove the the factors that we just talked about. So they have to prove that they believed they were in mortal danger, mm-hmm. that the harm that they inflicted back was proportionate to the harm that was being inflicted on them and that they had no way to escape it. So like they didn't have, they, they didn't leave the area or there was no way to leave is one of the ways to think about it. Mm-hmm. And they would have to have their attorney present that information to the jury and they would have to believe all those things within a reasonable doubt before they can be found that they did legally defend themselves. And how much harder is that? Like easier said than done. Much easier said than done. Yes. Do you know the percentage? I don't. Well, the the stat that I have is the one I said a minute ago from the University of Florida School of Law, I think, where they did a study on cases where women raised self-defense and cases where men raised self-defense and men were 50 percent more likely to prevail on that. In a court of law. Mm -hmm. Wow. So a lot of the women that are incarcerated would you say a lot of the women that are incarcerated in Oklahoma were not able to prove that it was self-defense defense if they were in a violent relationship? So 66% of the women incarcerated in Oklahoma were in a violent relationship within the year before they caught their controlling charge. That doesn't necessarily mean that they were all in fighting back type situations when they went to prison or that that was what they got charged with. Mm -hmm. A lot of them are getting charged with drug crimes that they did as a result of being in a coercive controlling relationship. Or a lot of them are in for um, child neglect type crimes where they didn't report the abuse Mm -hmm. that was happening because they were also being abused themselves. And so there's many profiles that you can have. Not all of them are fighting back or self-defense type profiles for criminalized um, survivors. But there are several in that I've spoken to that are on excessive sentences that were in a self-defense posture in their mind, Mm -hmm. but under the law would not be considered a self-defense type of situation. Like if you're in a relationship where the person's been abusing you for many years and you know they'll chase you, you know they'll hunt you down no matter where you go and the only time you can find to to save yourself or you feel that they're going to kill you, the only time you can do anything is possibly there's a famous case out of South Carolina where the man was asleep when she shot him and she tried to raise self-defense. It's not self-defense because she wasn't in acute danger. danger. Yeah. Wow. But it's a huge problem in the law. I mean, it's just like a very prominent um, example of sexism playing out in the court of law that like it's one of the areas where the law really hasn't caught up to 
the social science about being a victim of domestic violence. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so that is why I wanted to talk about the the mental illness uh, Ten Commandments because I feel like there, even if the guy was asleep, if you have been dealing with the abuse for a very long time in your brain, it, it it presents itself as a whole different reality than possibly from what the judge is actually seeing on that. But we'll touch on that here in just a second. Um, I do want to give Stephanie a chance to chime in. I just want to know what your opinion is. Um, and then if you'll talk about um, the day at the Capitol and what you had said at the Capitol that day that we went, um, I think Appleseed had um, advocacy day there or something like that. Yeah, I was so grateful that Colleen asked me to come and speak that day because um, I do think that all of this, you know, when you do talk about the root causes of misogyny in our state, and that's, you know, I I highly recommend, for example, reading Rebecca Solnit's book. There's a anecdote that she talks about in her book, and it's where she was standing outside at a dinner party in an affluent neighborhood uh, out on the front porch. And there's a house across the street in which a woman came running out the front door naked and saying, he's trying to hurt me. He's trying to hurt me. And the man that she was talking to on the front porch said, she's crazy. It's the way that we view, and in the Bible, they say through a glass darkly, you know, it's the way we sometimes view behavior that looks to us as being crazy behavior when that's a person who was being harmed. Uh, and it's, it, that is the bias through which we sort of oftentimes see women. And I think to look at root causes, I'm grateful, grateful, grateful to Appleseed Justice for looking at these root causes and looking at misogyny in our state. And one of the things that I think I mentioned on the steps of the Capitol that day, how, you know, was just, you know, when you really start talking in small groups uh, with friends, you know, you start looking back and realizing how normative and how normalized misogyny had been so much so that, um, you know, even when you experience it in small doses, when I was a younger woman, especially, I remember I would think somebody would even maybe just say something or just harass or just sexual harassment, you know, and you would, and I would think to myself, oh, I must have heard that wrong. You know what I mean? Like my own misogyny, my, um, mm-hmm. so that was internalized. The, in, in, the misogyny is internalized so that I never thought that maybe what was happening outside of my experience was wrong, that maybe somebody was wrong for saying something untoward or unkind to me, but that I was hearing them wrong. I thought that something was wrong with me and my interpretation of what was being said. That's internalized misogyny. And that is prevalent in our state. And that is one of the things that leads to and lends to these um, people just not really understanding and framing the story incorrectly. Stories are framed incorrectly in court, in the courtroom and just in the world. My client, actually, April Wilkins, who's one of the cases that we talk about frequently when we talk about criminalized survivorship in Oklahoma is she was in a violent relationship for two and a half years prior to there being a final altercation where she was actually handcuffed by him and held in his basement until she was able to get his gun and he lunged at her and she shot him and ended his life and was charged with first degree premeditated murder and sentenced to life. And she's been in prison since um, 1999. uh, So 26 years. Um, it's a 
harrowing story, but one of the things that happened to her was that almost the exact same scenario you just discussed and the police um, committed her to involuntary um, confinement for people with mental illness because of how afraid she was and how traumatized she was. And she ended up getting sent to Eastern State Hospital, Vanita, for treatment. And it's like she didn't need mental health treatment. She needed to stop being abused. Mm -hmm. Two very different things. Um, And for such a long time, we sort of conflated those issues. And also complex, what you were saying, complex PTSD often manifests itself as mental illness. Like it can look like schizophrenia. It can look like... um, severe depression it can look like these other things but really it's just the body trying to cope with the extreme amounts of trauma that have happened and when we have people misdiagnosing or looking at these behaviors as like quote-unquote crazy it really continues this confusion and the stigma of what these women have gone through but then also confuses um, people with mental illness with people who have gone through trauma which I think are two different things Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think um there's two sides of a coin with um, domestic abuse as far as um, biblically, you're supposed to stay with your husband. You're not supposed to get divorced. And that definitely goes through a lot of women's minds who are in a situation like that. And then the flip side of it is when you stay in the relationship, then you have people like, oh, well, you're dumb for staying in the relationship. Why didn't you just leave? And it constantly goes, the the coin constantly flips back and forth and back and forth. And that within itself is mental anguish and internal anguish within itself. And it's kind of like people are going to judge you. You know, if, if you stay in the relationship, if you don't stay in the relationship, you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. So um, that builds intently upon everything that we're talking about right now. Um, the On Appleseed.org, I'm sorry, okayappleseed.org, there's a place where I clicked at it. It was like mental illness, your client, and the criminal law. And so um, that's where the Ten Commandments of representing people with mental illness are. And the very first one there said, mental illness and intellectual and developmental disabilities are not the same. So if you will touch on how they differ really quickly, please. Sure. So intellectual and developmental disabilities are things that you are born with. Mm-hmm. They are, um, they're like your IQ. Uh, they are things that you cannot change with medication. So like no matter how much medication you give someone with a 60 IQ, it's not going to make their IQ go up. Uh, someone with a mental illness is also born with it sometimes, but sometimes it can manifest from complex trauma, like I was saying. But it is something that can be treated with medication in some cases. There are some treatment-resistant cases, but a lot of times with medication, proper treatment therapy, um, you can manage a mental illness. Um, So it's really important to know the difference between those two things. Someone with a mental illness could have a very high IQ Mm -hmm. and just be struggling with the manifestations of their illness. Um, They could have fixed delusions. They could have, like I said, schizophrenia, late onset schizophrenia, something that they didn't even know they had until maybe they were 25 or something like that. Um, So it's oftentimes very different. Those are very different things and they should be treated in the legal system very differently. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so for a person that is going through a situation, they can develop 
a mental illness first thing in the relationship. And that would definitely differ from their intellectual or def- developmental disability if they have one or the other. Yeah. Yeah. And someone could have both. Like you, you could have somebody with a developmental disability that also has a diagnosed mental illness. And sometimes they do co-occur. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to skip to number four, which is uh, mental illness and incompetence are not synonymous. And a lawyer should be concerned about both. If the client does not have a competence issue, there may, there may still be significant mental health issues. Mm-hmm. I think that is underlying for, th- that's where I was shocked at the self-defense law description because it, to me, and I could be biased because I have been in, a, in an abusive relationship, but it, I w- would think that overall, just generally, you would think that someone that has honestly dealt with um, an abusive situation, then you know the the mental illness that comes with it. Mm-hmm. So why is that not automatically given in a court of law? Mm. <sighs> That's a very complex answer. I'm going to try to do my best. I'm but sorry. <laughs> everybody, when they go before a judge, everyone is presumed to be innocent and everyone is presumed to be competent, that they understood what they did and that there's no reasons or mitigating factors um it's just a clean slate and it is the defense attorney's job to educate the court or the fact finder about what the special circumstances of that person's situation are and so I think it's important to think about these things of course PTSD is a is in the DSM-5 it is technically a mental illness, but it's not the same as some of these other things that you're born with. It's something that happened because of a result of the impact that the trauma has had on your brain over Mm -hmm. a long period of time. Mm -hmm. And so in order to prove that, it's going to be much different than just having a psychiatrist get up on the stand and say, yeah, he's diagnosed with schizophrenia. Like in order to prove complex trauma, I've got to have a lot of fact witnesses come up and say, yeah, I heard her being abused. Yeah, I heard these things happening over multiple years. Yeah, I saw him driving away at three in the morning after, um, you know, beating her up, things like that. And it's just a lot more difficult to prove the traumatized nature. So if the abuser was... Um, isolating the abusee and um, not really allowing them to go anywhere, definitely not allowing them to go to counseling or anything like that, then you would have a lack of evidence because no one would be able to come forward. Mm -hmm. That's basically what you're saying? That's what can happen a lot of times is there's, it's a, domestic violence is something that's still in our culture is very secretive. There's a big, um, you know, cone of silence around everything that's happening in the relationship because the couple often knows that the violence can expose them to other processes like Mm -hmm. DHS Mm -hmm. or other things. And so it is agreed upon essentially, maybe not said out, maybe not said out loud, but agreed upon within the culture of the relationship that we're not going to talk about this. And so oftentimes when women are trying to escape or leave, they might be using code words with their family to try to help them get away because also the abuser is controlling their communication devices and they're looking at everything and they're reading everything. So there's no privacy 
Um, and so if you're a lawyer trying to look back on the course of the communications or the or what's happened and trying to prove that something happened, it's going to be very difficult because even the people in the relationship were trying to hide mm-hmm. um, what was happening. And mm-hmm. so it does make it a lot more difficult to prove. Yeah. Wow. That is a lot. That really is. Um, I'm going to kind of um, melt to five three and six kind of together. So um, for any lawyers out there, you owe your client a zealous representation. That's number two. So make sure that you're filing the appropriate motions. And um, for number six is mitigate, mitigate, mitigate. Because your job as an attorney is to represent or to present the judge or jury with evidence that reveals your client as someone with significant impairments and disabilities that limit his or her reasoning or judgment, I would think that in the moment that it happened, that's what you're trying to prove. You're trying to prove that that moment has the impairment in it, correct? Yeah. So there's a bunch of different types of affirmative defenses and then there's mitigation. So um, self-defense is an affirmative defense that requires you to prove that in the moment when the crime happened, you were in that headspace of like, like we talked about earlier, that you were in fear of your life. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also an, what used to be called an insanity defense. Mm-hmm. Uh, now it's called the uh, not guilty by reason of mental illness, which um, proves that at the time of the crime, you did not understand the nature of reality or the difference between moral right and wrong that that wasn't accessible to you for whatever reason Th- those are both those are both defenses to what you did mm-hmm. and then there's competency which is that's asking the question of can you understand the legal proceedings against you right now and can you aid in your defense it's really more of a procedural problem because you're saying whether or not they were mentally ill at the time of the crime or not right now they can't understand the process that's happening against them and they need to have mental health treatment in order to restore them to competency so that their criminal process can go on Mm -hmm. so they're really like very different um things that you have to do as a lawyer uh depending on what's going on with your client Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so the 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 mental illness defense can be very, very appropriate. That's stated from the um, Ten Commandments. And if your client is incompetent, now this is regardless if it has to do with domestic violence or not, just overall, if your client is incompetent, then you should order them an evaluation and they should not accept a plea bargain at all. They cannot. Their case has essentially been stayed. So even if they wanted to plead guilty, even if they wanted to get out time or whatever, the prosecutor wants to offer a plea, none of that can happen until the person's been deemed what we call competent. Mm -hmm. So that means they understand time and place. They understand the roles of the court, the defense attorney. They understand the charges against them and they are able to proceed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that we have a lack of that commandment um, in Oklahoma, unfortunately, I really do, because I think that um, a lot of people, uh, that's probably why we ended up under the eye of the feds, you know, for what what was it? What was the exact thing? So the DOJ did an investigation specifically into Oklahoma County's responses to folks with mental illness and whether or not we were over-criminalizing 
people right over criminalizing. So you might be calling the police on people for things that really should be a mental health response. And then they end up in the Oklahoma County jail, which we know is one of the most deadly jails in the country. And they were simply acting in ways that were in conformity with their mental illness. So they're like, we're putting them in jail for something that they had really no choice in doing. Like a lot of times this happens with people who are homeless and transient and who have uh, persistent mental illnesses and they might be acting weird on the street or being loud or um, hassling people outside a quick trip. Or I had one case where the guy was uh, having a heat reaction outside a quick trip because he had been outside for so long and he had a delusion when he was getting put in the ambulance and kicked one of the ambulance workers. Well, he got arrested and put in jail for that and then was found incompetent to stand trial because he was having a delusion that the ambulance person was, you know, a messenger of President Biden or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course he was having a fixed delusion. It was one of the things that happens with his mental illness. So we're just criminalizing people for reacting out of their symptoms. Right. Right. And um, number seven said that ineffective assistance of counsel, um, basically it's a violation of the Sixth Amendment, which is a right to effective assistance of counsel. So, um, you know, I hope that a lot of lawyers are aware of that and using this defense if it's applicable. So um, number eight is to overcome your own prejudices before you hurt your client and his or her case. And then denial of psychiatric disability can deeply influence the attitudes of both judges and juries towards expert witnesses and mental health defenses. Do you actually see this happening? Yeah. So there's still this um, very persistent myth that people are using the insanity defense dishonestly or the mental illness defense dishonestly that they are faking it or that they're just using it to try to get out of culpability. Mm -hmm. And so there's like that predisposition to not believe someone uh, because they're like, well, of course now they want to get out of it. You know, it's a lot of like just kind of ableist thinking, I guess is one way of putting it because it's like, we all, if we did something horrible, we would immediately know, oh my God, I did something horrible. I feel terrible about this. I want to take responsibility. At least that's the societal expectation. Um, But with people with mental illness, it's not always the case. We can't look at it the same way. And so I do think that juries and the courts often feel like this is like a trick of the defense attorney, like, oh, here we go. We're going to try and bring up mental illness now. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we're kind of up against some of that. That is horrible. Um, Do you know when the league did our studies for criminal justice, did we tap onto any of the bias that might come um, from judges or juries or lawyers or any of that? Um, Any prejudices? Yeah, I'll have to go back and look at the policy positions exactly. But we were looking at biases and all that, you know, and all of their forms. And that's for sure one. Yeah, that's for sure one. So I'll have to go back and look exactly the policy positions. That might be a good thing to link in the 
just, I don't know if we can, can we link on the podcast? Like we, you know what I mean? I love on Facebook, we can link. Yeah. I love that we're the way we're able to link all of those good, because I think to go back and reflect on our policy positions now that we are able to use those positions in our advocacy. I did actually, uh, if you remember on the, the day on the steps of the state Capitol, I did pull from our policy position and read exactly the line about that. The league has determined that, uh, that we do discriminate against women and that, that, you know, misogyny has been. So that was written explicitly in there, but yeah, there's quite a bit in there and I don't remember offhand, you know, uh, but, but yeah, so it'd be good to go back and reflect on exactly. But we do have a position. And for for discriminatory praise. Yeah. It's um, you know what else I was just thinking, because of how we were talking about being preemptive and we've talked a lot about, the books and the reading. And of course, now one of the things that the league is part of coalition that's looking at the moratorium on the death penalty. And for me, so much of a sense of an inherent sense of justice and right and wrong has come about in my life from reading good books and literature, the very books that you were talking about, you know, when you start banning books and you say, we can't read about these. And I don't even know if I'd ever thought about the death penalty until maybe as an 18 year old college student, I read In Cold Blood and Truman Capote's work. So to read the great literature early and to have a sense of why do we even have a death penalty when clearly Truman Capote was able to look at uh, one of the men in particular. He looked at both men who committed the crimes in in cold blood in Kansas. But he he's but I remember that was the first time that I really read this is a true crime novel and read that novel and thought to myself, I absolutely don't believe in capital punishment, that capital punishment. So the the power of reading preemptively, I think, when we have our young kiddos in our care for the time that they're in school and we can read these books and we can discuss these issues early, mm-hmm. my hope for our educational system is that these are the kinds of things, you know, that we're talking about before we ever get, do you know what I mean? Before yes. we ever get to the places where people are in relationship. And, you know, I mean, we want to talk about what do healthy, what do healthy relationships look like? How do we model good, healthy relationships? What do we want that to look like? We, and um, we were talking earlier about, for example, there's one book called The Discipline Gradient that looks at all of the powerful ways that you can establish a sense of discipline and well-being in yourself, in your family, in your organizations, your communities, that you never really have to even consider punishment. Because when we create cultures and societies in which people are caring for one another, and that includes having hard conversations and reading hard books that bring up tough topics like mental health, you know, and yes, and racism and misogyny and all these. So if we're doing this early and in our schools, if we're educating our kids, well, that's good preemptive discipline. That's a way to ensure that we don't get into situations. You know what I mean? It's really... Because you're also educating future judges and future jurors and future attorneys. A hundred percent. And we said, Colleen, I said, when we were at the RBG event and we were sitting with some good attorneys, including Colleen, and I said, we started talking about To Kill a Mockingbird, which of course is my favorite book too. And I said, how many, I wonder, especially female attorneys became attorneys to fight injustice because they fell in love with the, um, with the, you know, the idea of what good justice looks like. What do we want justice to look like in our state? 
And so that, yeah, Mockingbird and In Cold Blood and books about justice, you know, having those conversations early and well. And so I, I thank you for doing it. And on podcasts, and Jackie always brings up the good conversations on podcasts. These are ways that we can, um, yeah, hopefully cut them off at the past. We said, we said this at Mabel Bassett on Monday. We said the best, um, Defense is a good offense. That's right. The best defense is a good offense. Let's teach one another how to be healthy in the world. Let's see, you know what I mean? In all the ways that that looks, let's, let's help one another. Let's encourage one another. Let's be in a relationship where we can all be healthy, you know, help, help one another to be our healthiest selves. And, you know, (laughs) Stephanie does a book club at Mabel Bassett for anyone who does not know, um, But yeah, all of this together, um, studies have shown that incarcerating people with mental illness, uh, it's harmful to them. So why we continue to do it um, and and purpose, it seems to me sometimes like we purposely attempt to not link mental illness in um, for that fear of what you're talking about. Um, oh, well, we're just trying to let them off. No, we're not trying to let them off. And I can definitely go on and on and on about it. Um, because I feel like a lot, um, of that can be divided into, um, economic situations as well. You know, people of a better, uh, economic background, they will get the quote unquote insanity plea, um, whereas the people who are homeless and, you know, the poor people and so forth, they don't, which leads me to the last commandment. Um, they, they get caught in this revolving door. And I know so many people who are in this revolving door and the courts refuse to acknowledge that they have a mental illness issue. Um, so if you want to tap on to that, Um, I also was, well, I'll just ask, so what would be the difference in that revolving door? Would it be spinning a lot faster for people who have public defenders versus private attorneys? I'll say, honestly, I've worked in the Tulsa County Public Defender's Office and worked closely with a, an OIDS defender. And honestly, if you if I'm getting charged with something, I want them on my side because they see these issues routinely um, and they know the people in the courtroom, they know the prosecutors, they know the judges, they know the procedure in and out. Um, a lot of times, depending on who you hire, you could be paying good money to an attorney who does not know anything about the situation that you're going into. I've seen more cases of horrible outcomes with people who had private attorneys that paid for that outcome mm-hmm. than I have with people who have public defenders, honestly. Really? And that is something that really grinds my gears. That's kind of scary, it. actually. It's very terrifying. Um, the mo- I mean, that's where I see the worst kind of... They're, they're, they are attorneys that have a multi-area practice and they're just trying to pay their bills and they might be a little bit lower on the fee side. And so it seems like a good deal um, for the people who are paying them, but then they may focus more on wills or, or um, personal injury cases on the civil side and they don't know the criminal side as well, or they don't um, know how to cross-examine an expert or the things that the public defenders get a ton of training on uh, that they're just kind of out on their own. Yeah. Yeah. Probably going to get some heat for that. 
comment, but it's true. <laughs> I agree with it. I also read that individuals with mental illness or intellectual or de- developmental um, disabilities, they're more likely to be victimized by other inmates and by jail staff, and they are at high risk for suicide. So, um, and allowing them to keep going through that revolving door, how, it, what does Oklahoma have in place as far as treatment or aftercare um, to stop recidivism? Yeah, one of the biggest issues here is that we're seeing the failures of like a really good mental health fabric and continuum of services. Um, there should be really easy access to care. There should be really easy access to, to psychiatrists and psychologists to get your meds, to get to stay on your meds. Um, and that should be preventative, something that is easily that people are easily able to find whether they wander into a shelter or whether they have a regular doctor, whether whatever community they're in, that should be the expectation. We don't have that right now. Mm -hmm. And so what we're seeing is this trap door of the criminal justice system being where we catch all those people because Mm -hmm. of the failure upstream. And so um, different counties have different services for people leaving jail or prison. Uh, There might be some in in Tulsa that are really great at doing reentry from jail Uh, or giving people the meds that they need. And then there's other jails where people are leaving with a brown bag of a week's worth of medication, and that's all they have. Mm. Um, And so it's an extremely patchwork system. Um, It makes me sad. Yeah, I get it. I totally get it. So for me personally, something that I tell people to do um, for a family member, for a loved one, for a friend or whoever, um, is to find the case number. Um, that their loved person is going through, find the judge and advocate on your own for that person. Write the DA, write the judge, write um, the public defendant or whoever and let them know, hey, can you take this a little bit more seriously because this person does have A, B, C, D mental illness going on. Would you say that's good advice? Yes, because when when the court gets a letter from the community about a person, they do put it into the court file and it lives there forever. Oftentimes when you're representing someone who has a serious mental illness, they're not able to tell you what their diagnoses were, what their meds are, what they've been you know, they've been in and out of the system, like you said, revolving door so many times that they can't remember that time they stayed at Vanita for however long. And they can't remember the last time they were at Griffin. And so if they do have a family member who's been actively engaged in their care, that sometimes can be the only way that the attorney can learn what's going on with this person so that they can represent them appropriately. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do think that's great advice. Uh, I would say um, maybe... Be careful what you say to the court and what you send to the DA, just because sometimes you think you're doing the person a favor, but you might be saying something that's even more incriminating that you didn't realize. Like they might not know that this person broke into your house when they were 14, but you're telling them as a way of saying, look, they've had these issues for a really long time. They did this Um, when I when I was 14. You're really just giving them more ammo than what they had before maybe. Mm -hmm. So you got to be a little bit careful about what you include. Um, You don't want to hurt someone's case, but it definitely, uh, the additional context, especially to the attorney is really good. Cool. 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 Well, thank you very much for being here. I really enjoyed this episode. Um, Is there anything you'd like to say in conclusion, Stephanie? Just thanks to, yeah, thanks for all the work. I've loved, we, we commented, I think before we went 
on air on the podcast about how we all, when we first at the league started looking into, and we first started the criminal justice forums, that was when we connected with Colleen and the Oklahoma um, Oklahomans for Criminal Justice Reform Group. And so we came out here before this podcast studio was even um, built. We did a little podcast here and met up at Camille's at uh, Nappy Roots Bookstore. And so we've been doing this work together now long for a uh, long time. Now, you know, I mean, it's been and it's been a steep learning curve. And Colleen, I don't know if you know, but I've been telling a lot of folks it's been a steep learning curve in which I find that I'm unlearning a lot of the things I ever thought I knew. It's a lot about unlearning for me. Yeah, for sure. I'll just put in a quick plug for um, our coalition that works on survivor justice issues. It's OKSurvivorJusticeCoalition.org. We are trying to pass legislation that would allow people who are survivors of domestic violence to receive shorter sentences. Our sentences are some of the longest in the nation here in Oklahoma, and they do not have a mechanism for these people to enter that evidence of the abuse. Um, so we are trying to create that procedure and allow people who are currently serving time in prison to get shorter sentences. So if you're interested in getting involved with that movement, go to OKSurvivorJusticeCoalition.org and we will welcome you into the fold. And what's your social media tag if they want to follow you? Um, at OK underscore Appleseed on Instagram or Facebook.com slash OK Appleseed Center. Yep. And we are at LWV OK County on Facebook. And I don't really use anything else for the league. But thank you for listening. Have a great day. Bye. Tushalicious Talk is part of the Breaking Ice, Building Bridges community podcast platform brought to you by Possibilities, Inc.